Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is often referred to as the resurrection chapter, and with good reason. As we saw last week, it contains great and glorious things about the resurrection. And what brought the whole subject up was that some in the church in Corinth, there were some of them who say they they believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but they do not believe in the resurrection of believers from the dead. And of course, Paul says, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead, then you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, because the gospel inextricably ties believers to Christ. And if you do not believe the good news that Christ died and was buried, and on the third day he rose and appeared to many, then you do not believe the gospel, and you are still in your sins. There is no resurrection of the soul without the resurrection of the body because we are wholly in Christ. Then Paul, he broadened our perspective of the resurrection. The resurrection is not only about our eternal salvation. The resurrection is about the very glory of God. At Christ's resurrection, God gave him all authority in heaven and on earth so that now Christ, begin, or Christ reigns and is at work destroying all of the enemies of God by saving sinners one soul at a time through the proclamation of his gospel by his church. And at the future bodily resurrection of all believers from the dead, Christ will defeat the last enemy, which is death itself. And he will deliver the kingdom to his heavenly Father. And Christ will reign over his new creation kingdom. And our God will be all in all. Hallelujah. The resurrection is great and glorious stuff. But the skeptics in Corinth haven't gone away. They still don't think the bodily resurrection of the dead is possible or desirable. If you want to follow along in the sermon outline provided in your bulletin this morning, you'll see this theme. Because Christ will conquer death and close us with bodies fit for eternity, we should be confident and motivated to abound in the Lord's work knowing it all matters to him. Let me read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin and we'll pick up where we left off in verse 35 to the end. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not in the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, Paul is, as we know, is already convinced that God is able to resurrect us to a spiritual body. Uh, and, And it's clear that he thinks that the resurrection skeptics are fools. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? These are not innocent honest questions. The skeptics think they have knowledge, right? We see that throughout Corinthians. So there are people who have knowledge, but their knowledge is based in pagan philosophy. We've talked about that. They had knowledge that resurrection of the body was impossible. That was their knowledge. They had knowledge that the resurrection of the body was disgusting. That was their knowledge. Now, Paul had already said in verse 34 that they have no knowledge of God, so he's contradicted them. Paul has already said in verse 34 that they have no knowledge of God. Which Paul says again when he calls them fools. In the Proverbs 1-7 sense. Proverbs 1-7 says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In that way, they're fools. So these two questions are really taunts. Well, Paul, you've told us how it is. Now, Now let us tell you how it is. They're saying that God is not able to raise the dead. And they're saying that if he did, the bodies would be horrific. They can only conceive of a resurrected body as a decayed corpse. As in, go roll away the stone and bring out the decayed corpse. Who wants that? It's disgusting. It smells. We would would call what they're thinking about a zombie. That's That's what they're thinking about. That if they raised the corpses from the dead, they would all look like zombies. Just, they move weird. 
You know, there's something wrong with them. Uh, the way they move, it's just not normal. It would be horrific. And so Paul deals with both objections, emphasizing God's resurrection power and God's resurrection purpose. You see, his argument is that it's reasonable. It's entirely reasonable to believe that God can raise the dead. And so he uses three illustrations from creation to make his point. In verses 36 to 38, Paul says that a seed does not come to life until it is first buried in the ground. Then the plant emerges from the seed, just as God wills. There are a great variety of seeds that, when planted, produce a great variety of plants, all by the sovereign power of God who created them. So if God can cause amazing fruitful plants to emerge from seeds when they're buried in the ground, it's entirely reasonable to believe that that same God can resurrect a living body from a dead body when it's buried in the ground. Paul's response to the skeptics who think they have knowledge about resurrection, it echoes Jesus' response to the Sadducees who thought they had knowledge of the resurrection in Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus said to them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So Paul's just a little more succinct. He just says, fools. Now notice something about Paul's argument that is going to continue throughout this chapter. There is both continuity and discontinuity between what is sown and what is raised. I used to, uh, I used to take mission teams to China uh, many years ago, and, and we learned in China there are a couple of concepts of sameness. There is same-same, and there is same different. I was looking out my kitchen window this past week and I saw a brand new Mercedes-Benz coupe in my neighbor's driveway. And if another brand new Mercedes-Benz coupe of the same color had pulled up and parked next to it, I would have pointed at them and said, same, same. But when I thought about that Mercedes, as I went out into the garage and looked at my 2002 Ford Escape, I said to myself, same different. They're both cars, and I've never driven a Mercedes Coupe, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Pretty sure they're same but different. You see, so there's continuity between the seed and the plant. A barley seed produces a barley plant. That's continuity. But the living plant is gloriously different from the seed. There's a discontinuity. And we'll see that the body that is buried is the same body raised, but different. It's been changed. But first, Paul goes on to expound the creative power of God in verse 39. Even when God created flesh, not just man, but all flesh, he created a variety, each appropriate for its environment. Skin is good for humans. Uh, we would say scales are not. Scales are great for fish. But fur is not. But fur is appropriate for bears and squirrels and moose and chipmunks. You see, God knows what he's doing by design. Why are fish the way they are? And why are moose the way they are? God knows. His knowledge and power goes beyond humans to all created flesh. If he has created flesh, certainly he is able to raise flesh from the dead. And his power goes beyond that. In verse 40 to 41, 
Paul says that God not only knows earthly bodies, he knows heavenly bodies. He knows the sun and the moon and the stars. Not only has God given unique beauty and splendor to the earthly bodies and their environment, but he has given unique beauty and splendor to heavenly bodies across the universe. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, and within that, stars differ from star and glory. God knows bodies. He created bodies. And for those who have knowledge of God, it is entirely reasonable to believe that he is able to raise bodies from the dead. That's Paul's argument. God sows a natural body, and he raises a spiritual body. In verses 42 to 44, Paul applies the illustration from seeds to the resurrection, emphasizing again both the continuity and the discontinuity between this life and life in the age to come. The continuity is that it's the same person's body. The discontinuity is in the nature of that resurrected body. And he gives four contrasts between what is sown and what is raised. You can see them in the text. First, the body that is sown perishable. Well, we know that all too well, don't we? The body that is raised is imperishable. Because that's the one we're promised. That's the one we're hoping for. Second, the body that is raised or is sowed is sown in dishonor. But it's raised in glory. When Paul says that our bodies are dishonorable... He's not agreeing with the skeptics that believe that the body is intrinsically evil. Remember, they only want the spirit to go on. That's their pagan philosophy. And the body to burn, or the material to be done away with. He means that our bodies are they're like dishonorable vessels. They're corruptible. They're weak in their very nature. But the resurrection body will be glorious and will not suffer from frailty. Paul says a similar thing in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, when he writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, so that's the future environment that we're going towards, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What power is that? Well, that's the power Paul's been telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the power of the resurrection. So it makes sense that, thirdly, the body is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. Human bodies are plagued with illness, injuries, fatigue, and finally death. But in the resurrection, they will not weaken, but strengthen. I mean, that's something to look forward to. Fourth, Paul contrasts the natural body with a spiritual body. <clears throat> it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, now we need to define Paul's terms here in the ways that he's using them. First, both bodies, natural and spiritual, are physical bodies. The natural body is what all people possess upon entering the world. We have a natural body in Adam. When new life comes in Christ by faith in the gospel, believers then receive the Holy Spirit within them. 
That's what Paul said back in chapter 2. But we do not immediately receive a spiritual body also. We will not receive a spiritual body until the end. We often, we often refer to this as our resurrected or glorified bodies. That's what Paul's talking about here as a spiritual body. So what Paul means by a spiritual body is a physical body empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit. The spiritual body is physical, but in contrast to one's earthly body, it lives in a whole new realm, the heavenly realm, the new creation. We need this new body as we enter into that eternal habitat, if you will. And God will make it happen. That's why Paul can say, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Not only is it reasonable to believe that God is able to resurrect the dead, it's necessary. Our perishable bodies will not exist in the imperishable place. And they will not inherit it. Because resurrected believers will bear the image of Christ. That's what needs to happen. Pick up in, in, the, in the middle part of verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man became a living being. The last Adam became a, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. One more time, Paul contrasts Adam and Christ. The natural and the spiritual. The earthly and the heavenly. And he emphasizes two things. One... There's a sequence of the two, and there's a time gap between the two. First comes the natural body, then the spiritual body. That's the sequence, just like the seed and the plant. And we know that from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed the first Adam of the dust from the ground, and he became a living creature. Christ, the second Adam, came much later. That's the time gap between the two. And Christ, the last Adam, the greater Adam, is a life-giving spirit. Now, the spirit here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So in this verse, the resurrected Christ gives the spirit, we can say the spirit of Christ, to his people. And as a result, they are guaranteed that they will experience the final resurrection. The natural is first, and after that comes the spiritual, and believers will then bear the image of the man of heaven in their spiritual, physical bodies. In verses 47 to 49, Adam is the earthly man of dust, as in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, which we just talked about, while Jesus is the man from heaven. Now, Paul's not, Paul's not referring to Jesus' incarnation when he says he's He's the man from heaven. Jesus didn't come from heaven as a man. Paul's referring to Jesus as the resurrected Lord. He's the heavenly man now because he is now seated at God's right hand as the resurrected Lord of all in his resurrected glorified body. 
And all people born into the world are made of dust, and they bear the image of Adam. But all who are united with Christ also become heavenly people. They will be given a body that is imperishable, incorruptible. They will bear the image of the man of heaven, the image of Christ. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Hallelujah. What's the answer to the skeptical taunt with what kind of body do they come? A body like the resurrected body of Christ himself. Remember when Jesus appeared to Martha at the empty tomb and she fell at his feet and she grabbed hold of him and she wouldn't let go until he told her to? Martha let go of me. And remember Thomas put his hand in Jesus' side and in the wounds of his hands, Jesus had a resurrected physical body. And when Jesus appeared to Martha and he spoke to her, she thought her Lord was the gardener, the cemetery keeper, until Jesus revealed himself to her as her Lord. Jesus' disciples were hidden in a room behind closed doors when Jesus appeared to them in the room without opening a door to walk in. You see, Jesus has a glorified body that fits heaven and eternity. It has qualities that fit there that are supernatural here. Not a natural body, but a spiritual body fit for his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he is now. Right now, we bear the Spirit of Christ within us. But then, we will bear the image of Christ in our physical bodies as well. When is that? When we're changed. We shall all be changed in the moment of the resurrection. Pick up in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For when the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. So Paul says believers, both alive and dead, believers will put on imperishable bodies fit for heaven. Now, Paul does not address unbelievers in this chapter. You have to go elsewhere for that. Paul's addressing believers. And he promises that a transformation, a future transformation, will come. We will all be changed, whether alive or dead, at the end when the trumpet sounds. In verse 50, he says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Inheriting the kingdom of God refers to entering the new creation kingdom. Corruptible flesh and blood will not enter the kingdom. Flesh which is fallen and mortal because of sin does not enter 
that which is imperishable. Does not receive or inherit that which is imperishable. See, the resurrection deniers do not know God. They do not have the Spirit of Christ. They still have natural, perishable bodies. They cannot and they will not inherit the kingdom. But believers will. Because they will be resurrected with imperishable bodies, fit for an imperishable, eternal life in the new creation kingdom. And then Paul reveals a mystery. Well, well, that makes our ears perk up. A mystery is a secret previously concealed but now revealed. There's something that, that was hidden for a time so that it could be revealed later. What's the mystery? Well, all along, Paul has been talking about the resurrection of dead believers when Christ returns. What about those Christians who are alive when Christ returns? What about them? How do they become a seed buried in the ground that comes up a new plant? Will they be stuck in their natural bodies? How will they put on the imperishable? Well, that's who Paul reveals a mystery about. Not every Christian will sleep. That's what he says. Not all of us will sleep. That is, not every Christian will die. And those who are alive when Christ returns will also receive incorruptible bodies. That's the good news. That's new news. That's why it's a mystery that's now been revealed. Paul promises that all believers will be changed. This transformation will take place instantaneously, and it will occur at the last trumpet, at the end, when Jesus returns. When the trumpet sounds, the believing dead will be raised with imperishable and incorruptible bodies, and the living believers will be changed instantaneously, so that their bodies will no longer be perishable, but imperishable. Hallelujah! All will be changed. Believers will have physical bodies in the coming age, but those bodies will not be corruptible, not like these bodies. This is why transformation must occur. It's why you can't have a gospel without the resurrection. It is a predetermined divine necessity. What is perishable and mortal has to be clothed with imperishability and immortality since that which is corrupted by sin cannot exist in God's presence, cannot enter the new creation kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, we shall all be changed. And at that very moment, Christ will be victorious over the last enemy, which is death. The day is coming when what is mortal and perishable will be clothed in what is immortal and imperishable. When that day arrives, Paul says, the promise of Isaiah chapter 25 verse 8 and of Hosea chapter 13 verse 14 will be realized. Those both use these words. Death is swallowed up in victory. You want to ask a question about the resurrection? You want to do a little skeptical taunting about the resurrection? How about this? Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, Paul sees God's promise of redemption in Isaiah and in Hosea fulfilled in Jesus Christ through the resurrection of believers in Christ. 
And when believers are resurrected in Christ, that will be the death of death. Of course, it feels a little different when you're standing beside the grave of a believing loved one, doesn't it? I've read these verses in that setting. And as I look at the faces gathered around the grave, it seemed as if, seems as if, death has delivered a sting. It strikes us as so final. It feels like the end. And we don't feel like we've won at that moment. Because all we feel is loss. Because there's this delay. There's this gap in time between our death and our resurrection. Don't you think it's one of the reasons why the apostle tells us that if Christ is raised, then it is certain that all who are in Christ will be raised? Death wants us to think we've lost. But God has predestined that if there is a natural body, there will be a spiritual body. And if there is a perishable body buried in that grave, He will raise it imperishable. He gives us the promise, the sure and certain promise and assurance that will happen. So that we know Because we have knowledge of God. And then Paul gives this one short, highly condensed theological statement about the certainty of Christ's victory over death. He hasn't said anything about the law or the law's relationship to sin in this whole letter. It's kind of like out of the blue. Until here in verse 56 when he says, The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. I think Paul is saying that it takes a law in order for there to be sin, which is a transgression of that law, which then results in death, which is the penalty for transgressing that law. You see where the law is the foundation of that. The law is not evil in and of itself, but it's because there is a law that sin, our sin, has the sting of death. You know, Paul actually unpacks this elsewhere. In his writing, I think these are some verses that would help. When he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. When he says, sin has not counted where there is no law. Romans chapter 5 verse 13. The law enables sin to abound. Romans chapter 5 20. And apart from the law, sin lies dead. Romans chapter 7, verse 8. We get, a, we get a little unpacking, I think, of what Paul's talking about there between the relationship between sin and the law. But don't forget, he's talking kind of in theory here. Don't forget, we're the sinner. <laughs> that sin is attached to a sinner. We are the guilty transgressors, justly condemned by God's righteous and holy law. Who can remove death's sting from us? Who can bring about the forgiveness of our sins? Who can defeat death for us? 
Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who. See, the question you have to answer is, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Because the victory comes through him. See, God has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth, and right now, he is using that authority to turn you away from the sting of death, which is your sin. Your unwillingness to submit your life to Christ is the sting. The result of the sting is God's willingness to condemn you for rejecting Christ's rightful authority over your life. That's fair, because it's the law. So before you shake your fist at God saying, I can't change, I can't change myself. Maybe you've tried before, and you know you can't change yourself from sinner to saint. Well, the message for you this morning is that God knows you can't. That's why he sent his son Jesus to win the victory for you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. It's Jesus who died on the cross in your place, taking the punishment for your sin upon himself. He met the law's demands, removing the sting of sin and the punishment of your death if you would believe in him this morning. It's his offer of life to you this morning. I'm just announcing it. It's his offer. It's his victory he wants to give you this morning. I'm just telling you about it. It's his imperishability and his immortality and his glorious image that you can really have this morning. I'm just here to tell you to believe it. Stop mocking him with your skeptical questions and thoughtless objections. And believe that God raised Christ from the dead. And he'll raise you from the dead too. Won't, won't that be something? Won't that be something to see Christ defeat death? And to stand next to him on that day and say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, verse 58 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That word, therefore, refers to everything that Paul has said in chapter 15. Remember how the chapter began? You'll see this tied together. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to many. He goes on to say, but in the fact in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead also. For as an animal all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And he tells us this morning, all believers will be changed. 
All believers will put on the imperishable. And on that certain, necessary, future day, all believers will give thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, now, my beloved brothers, based on all of that, you be steadfast. You be immovable. You know what you should be doing based on all of that? You should be abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's not empty. When we put the very beginning of the chapter and the very end of the chapter together, Paul's addressing the church. He's addressing the church through this whole letter. Since our sins are forgiven through Christ, since death has been conquered, and since we have an indestructible hope of a future resurrection, Paul encourages us to stand firm in the gospel in which we stand. Stand firm in your resurrection hope because God has resurrection power. And by it you will be glorified and you will bear the bodily image of Christ. We will all be made fit for heaven, body and soul. Which means that we can give ourselves to the work of the Lord. The only way our labor in the Lord could be in vain is if we had believed in vain. But having believed, our labor is never in vain. Our service is never empty, never meaningless, never a waste of time, never unnoticed. So abound in it. Let me suggest three applications of this great and glorious passage. One, do not doubt the resurrection power of God. Do not doubt the resurrection power of God. Do not doubt the future bodily resurrection of all believers. Do not doubt that we will all be changed. Believers living and dead on that day that we will see Christ defeat death and give us the victory. And you may be saying to yourself, well, yes and amen. I believe in the resurrection, always have. I don't, I don't really need to learn about the resurrection. I believe it. Well, good. That's good. It's very good. Believe the resurrection. But has your confidence in the resurrection been translated into abounding in work of the Lord. Because your growing confidence in you bearing the image of the man of heaven should result in you abounding more and more in the work of the man of heaven. So reflect upon that. Maybe you do need to reflect on the Resurrection just a little bit deeper. Two, do not doubt the change to come. Do not doubt the change to come and that it has already begun. God has made us embodied spirits. We will live in eternity, body and soul. What you do with your body matters, brothers and sisters. 
It matters now. But while we await our bodily transformation at the trumpet sound, we do have the Spirit of Christ within us now. Here. We are now, in Christ, dead to sin. So let's stop sinning with our bodies. We are now, in Christ, alive to righteousness. So let's pursue righteousness now with our bodies. Are you shocked or bored that the preacher would preach one more time for you to stop sinning? Which one is it? I mean, what do you expect? Jesus said the one who loves God is the one who obeys his commands. For believers to stop sinning is not legalism, it's love. It's to obey the good and gracious commands that God has given to us for our good. Stop sinning because God loves you and has loved you in Christ. Because Christ lives within you, start loving the brethren as Christ commanded. Because you can. And because that is the work of the Lord that we are to be at. Here's my third and last comment. Paul has been laboring throughout this letter to move the Corinthians away from their rampant individualism, their pursuit of their own spirituality, to be a real fellowship. To be united in love. Remember this, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Remember this, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everywhere I find the phrase, the work of the Lord, or our labor in the Lord, in the New Testament, it points to the word of the Lord directed at the Lord's church. And that's literally been Paul's labor in writing this word of the Lord to this local church in Corinth. And in a nutshell, that's his strong encouragement to us here. Paul's beginning admonishment in chapter 1 was, you are the church of God. So, be the church of God. And here, he admonishes us to abound in the work of the Lord Building up the church in love. Love that he says does not seek its own, but that with a confident view to our future resurrection in Christ, labors in gospel proclamation, which is never in vain. Well, I, I, I go out and I share the gospel and people, people don't believe, and then my reputation takes a ding, and it kind of seems... Not just that it's in vain, but it's harmful to me. I'm just kind of wondering if you've ever had that thought. There's a lot to risk here. Doing the work of the Lord. You're risking nothing at all. 
you're risking nothing at all. Because the gospel is the only seed that when planted bears the fruit of salvation. And it's never a waste. It's never empty. It's never in vain. And it always goes noticed by the one who gives us the victory. So let's be steadfast in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we shout hallelujah that Christ has saved us, that the victory is his, that he's made it ours, that in him we're in Christ's death to sin, and that in him we're in Christ's resurrection, and that you will not leave us to decay, but that you will raise us bodily the physical, spiritual, glorified body. And we will then in all ways bear the mark of the man of heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to endeavor to be steadfast in doing your work, your gospel work, your church work, for your glory. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.